Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm a feminist, but... Lately, I've been doing this 90s fashion statement, which is to wear a T-shirt under a dress with shoestring straps. Um, And today, I am uh, uh, wearing a white T-shirt under a black dress, and I have insecurely asked three people, does this look like a monochrome dirndl, or is it giving understanding 21st century nun who doesn't really believe in God but wants to teach children to read? (laughs) I like the nun one. Yeah. Well, everyone else said no. Oh. I don't know. I feel like it might look a bit like a German dirndl. You know, if you go and see... Uh, if you go into Bavaria and... What's a dirndl? Well, it's... You know that German, traditional German dress that women wear to church or to do traditional dancing? You know, a traditional <laughs> German dirndl. Think about German national dress. Don't wear to church. What was that? They don't wear it they to wear, church. I heard, it, I heard they wear it for Oktoberfest. Someone said they don't wear it to church. I nannied for a woman in Bavaria and she wore it to church and everyone did. What was that? It's weird. It's weird for her to do. She I was knew. German though. What, are you German? No, I lived there. You I, lived there? I lived there Ah. Oh, you're German. Yes, you think right. it's weird for a woman to wear a dirndl to church? Yes, probably. It was a very conservative part of Bavaria, I think. Old-fashioned. Does that make more sense? Because he wore, like, lederhosen. Mm. 
They were a really... Well, they were a very wealthy, very odd couple, I'll be honest with you. I, I knew a guy who wore a Slipknot hoodie to Mass. Um, and that was frowned upon. That was... You know, that kid... I can see why. Yeah. What so, did you wear to Mass? Uh, for, well, in, when you do your confirmation, you're allowed to pick your own uh, clothes as a 12-year-old. And um, I went double denim. <gasps> double I thought you had denim. to wear white for confirmation. Communion. That's uh, when you dress as a bride. It's not weird at all. Because <laughs> uh, you're a 12-year-old. It's totally Christ. normal. No, yeah. a seven-year-old. Even seven-year-old. better. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And you have to... <laughs> you have to... Uh, did you ever have Holy Communion? Uh, I, we had communion, but in the Anglican church, I don't think we called it holy. It was just communion. Was it just a wafer? No, a wafer. No, 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 no. We had the, we had the wine. Oh, <laughs> After talking, I was confirmed as an I'm Anglican. I'm talking solids, like the wafer. Do yeah. You know? As an Anglican, before, this is before we became Jehovah's I'm Witnesses. I'm an Anglican, but... Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Before we became Jehovah's Witnesses, we went to the Church of England, and my dad became a a lay preacher who used to give the wine and the bread. So uh, we used to have to go down and kneel, and it was sometimes my dad, and he'd put this little wafer on your tongue, and then you drink the wine. Wow. You sip it. It is odd when you think about it, because we were children. Yeah, it's like a holy lunchable, isn't it? You know, like those (laughs) little bad boys. Um, Yeah, I used to... did Did you have the... This, you can't say it without sounding weird. I'm going to try. Did you, did you have a choice whether to have it in the mouth or the hand? Again, I think that my local Church of England was very different from your right. yeah, yeah. Irish Catholic experience. Yeah. I was a big mouth girl, to be honest with you. It, I think it was... And I, now, you, now you're making me sound weird, but I think it was always in the mouth. Yeah. I don't think we did ever take it in the hand. You had to open your mouth. Yeah, I know. Oh, God, you had to kneel down and open your mouth. I've never thought of that before. I know. I always felt like a hungry hippo. You know that? <laughs> I loved it, yeah. Okay, can you please do one? Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> I'm a Catholic, but... Um, Okay, I'm a feminist, but I saw a woman uh, taking in Jaffa cakes into the Beyonce concert last week. And that was the most inspiring thing I saw all night. (laughs) Like, no, Beyonce was amazing. (laughs) Don't get it wrong. Don't get, like, Beyonce was incredible, life-affirming. But when I saw that woman taking a full multi-pack of Jaffa cakes, <laughs> who run the world, carbs? You know, it's beautiful. Um, um, I'm a feminist, <laughs> but uh, yesterday I met a friend and uh, decided to walk home from the West End back to Camden. And so as I was leaving him to walk away, a man started following me and going, oh, Oh, I heard you saying I heard you saying you were really excited about something to that guy. What what are you excited about? It's like this random man and I turned around and I, I realized he was hitting on me and I was just like and I just said, Oh, it's all good and I just kept walking and I just thought, what is it with men hitting on women in the street? Can they not understand at least make eye contact first? Like if you're gonna wanna do that, what you'd have to do is run around, go to the other side of the street, run up, cross the road, so that you could walk casually back the other way, make eye contact, smile, 
and then say something like, I don't know, ask for direction. Why am I teaching men how to hit on women? I don't know. <laughs> but I felt like if he'd said, oh, do you know where, you know, Leicester Square Theatre is or something like that, I would have said, oh, yes, down there. And he said, oh, do, are you going there too? No, but I perform there sometimes. Like, I'm, I'm now having the would conversation that, I would have had. Would that creep you out, though, if a guy's like, where are you going to? You know? <laughs> no, but if he asked me for direction or something. But just chasing me going, I've been eavesdropping into your conversation. Yeah. I need to know the details. And it was, I was like, man... Men, come on now, do better. But then, tonight, I walked from Camden to here, to King's Place, and the most handsome man I saw on my walk didn't even acknowledge me. Like, he saw me, and he didn't smile, he didn't look at me, he didn't acknowledge me. It was just like I was completely out of the running from him, and I was very annoyed. Where are you? I was just like... Genuinely, I thought this was like a good news story. I was like, great. No, he was French, and that explains it all. And I know that because after I saw him, he got on the phone and I followed him, but not in a way that... (laughs) Not in a way that you're thinking, not in a bad way. He came across the road, so that's how we could make eye contact, and then he turned, so he was walking ahead of me. So I had to be walking behind him. And I heard him get on the phone and speak in French, and I thought, that's why, because he's French and he thinks he's better than me. And, you know, like a handsome French man with a scarf. Like, and I was just like, man... Oh, I don't know. They, they have quite a lot of affairs, don't they? Well, the not French. with me. Didn't even... Didn't, why didn't he say, oh, what, were you, what were you surprised about? I heard two days ago you were surprised. Or you were, are you excited about something? Why were you excited? I heard you look excited. You know. <laughs> that would be amazing. Wouldn't it be? Could, could, I, could I get directions to your house? You know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so what I've established from this is men cannot get it right. <laughs> um, and no men should just not you know unless there's something organic men should just not harass women in the street uh, I'm joking about the French I mean the, he, there was a French man I did follow him but he, he didn't smile at me it did annoy me all of that is true but it is obviously a joke because obviously I don't want any men French or otherwise to harass women in the street and I'm a feminist but I really told you that because I wanted you to know I'm walking everywhere now <laughs> I, I was thinking that. Were you? Were you thinking she's getting a steps in? Because I never walk anywhere normally. And yeah. I've started. And I'm just so smug about it. I needed everyone to know. So I thought, how can I smuggle it in? Those stories are absolutely cast on true. Both of them are 100% true. I've not yeah. made anything up. But I did think... I'll add the detail about how I was, where I was walking from and to. I did, I did think, like, like, do you want people to know where you live? Like... I felt like you were toxin yourself. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, sorry, don't worry. No, I don't mean it, in it. I, people who listen to The Guilty Feminist are so lovely. They're not yeah. going to be like, where in Camden does she live? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, there is the guilty part. Like, what have they been guilty of <laughs> in the past? <laughs> Stalking? Completely, you know? think people listen to this who've, like just done second degree murder they're not like oh this podcast is for me genuinely guilty feminist I'm guilty yeah but yeah no I hope I hope people who've done second degree murder do listen because I, I want to include everyone in the space and I think it's nice to like I'm, if you're listening and you've done second degree murder please don't write in and go well, oh my god no, Deborah, not. you're fine they're fine I hope I, I hope mean they-, they got bigger things on their mind <laughs> then you'd be surprised at the emails I get <laughs> By the way, I, but someone uh, stopped me in the street in Camden the other day called Maraid, and I told her to come tonight. Maraid, are you in? Yeah. Hey! hey! Maraid came. So this is another story about how I was walking somewhere. Hey! 
And someone went past me and went, oh my God, it's you. And I was like, I must know you. Yes. And I was like, yes, it's me. And it's you, you, you. I think it was probably a comedian who worked in Edinburgh or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, you don't know me. I love your podcast. And I was like, oh my God, did you live in Camden? Yeah, I'm doing a show in Camden virtually tomorrow night. Come along and we'll, I'll see you in the bar afterwards. So Maraid's in. So be your applause for Maraid. Beautiful. Um, and what did we take away from that? Getting my steps in. Beautiful. I'm a feminist, but I, I like to buy shampoo that warns me not to eat it. Like, I like, I like a shampoo that says, please do not consume. Um, because I feel like it's looking out for me, personally. Which shampoos say that? Isn't that for children's shampoo? Nah, mate, I'm a full-grown woman. Um, it's, sorry, I don't know why I said it like that. I'm grown! Um, it's a banana shampoo. And it's called oh, Hair Food. And it smells like banana and it's called Hair Food. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if they expect someone to just like cup their hand in and smear it in their mouth and like condition their gums. So you basically say you're a feminist but you like to be patronised by your packaging. I do. I love that shit. Because it just feels like, do you know when someone goes, be careful? And you're like, oh, you care for me. You feel like you're being mothered. I feel like Garnier cares for my well-being. <laughs> Is it Garnier? L'Oreal. Whatever it is. One of those ones that tells L- you you're worth it. Yeah, Lush don't give a shit about me. <laughs> yeah, I'm joking. I'm trying to think of a company. <laughs> if you're listening and you work for Lush, we know that you do give, as Alison puts it, a shit about all of us. No, with I- your homemade products that are out the back. I want to see Lush do a whole campaign a month of, like, caring about Alison's well-being. <laughs> we just want Alison Spittle to know that we care. So it's like, L'Oreal, you're worth it. Lush, we give a shit about Alison. Yeah. Lush, Alison, drink some water. Come on. Get out of the house, babes. Alison, please stop Googling yourself. What are you doing? And that would be the Alison, whole Alison, take Instagram off your phone. It's rotting your brain. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can you do Can another you? one? I, I did two in a row. Okay. Uh, I'm a feminist, but I seem to only buy painkillers that come in pink packaging. Because I feel like it'll work better. Oh, yes. You know? It's really fucked up. No, I know but what you mean. I just go in, I'm like, pink, thank you. Because period pain... Ones. Yes, that's the ex- All, exactly always one. come in pink packaging. Yeah, and I but they come in a vibrant pink that implies this is strong. Yeah, or like uh, and it, as well as that, like period pain feels so all encompassing as a pain. I feel and like uh, I feel like if it sorts that shit out, it can do this tension headache fine. You know, I think that's right. I think period pain uh, pills. Yeah. Oh, it's the good shit. It's the good shit. Because, you, you'll because need it's, it tomorrow. It's so you much know? worse pain. Those painkillers have to be industrial. Well, they don't have to be, but I like it. Like, you know what I mean? Sometimes you like to clean your kitchen with bleach. Doesn't need it. But you feel like you've done something. I get it. <laughs> Live from King's Place in London, the
hello and welcome. So, so lovely to see you. It's so lovely to be here back in person. I could touch you if there wasn't such a gulf between me and the stage. I don't really like the... I mean, I love King's Place. It's one of our favourite venues. Please come in. Look, these people are late because they've been fighting the patriarchy right up for the last second. Come in. Is anyone late because of feminism? Anyone late because their work, they've got a feminist job? Feminist job? Yeah. I was just saying I, I love King's Place, but I don't like it when you're so far below me because I know that if you're in the front two rows, you've got the same view of me that I get when I accidentally open my camera phone the wrong way. <laughs> you know that moment where you feel like, oh, God, is that what I look like? I'm all chin. Um, I really, I think I look better the further we go back. So people at the back, I'm nowhere near as attractive as you think I am. People down the front, I'm 45% more attractive than you think I am. Just so you know, just so you know. And I know some of you are going, wow, you must be really hot. Nobody's saying that, why? Disappointing. Um, just give us a cheer if you listen to The Guilty Feminist. Woo! Give us a cheer if you don't know what you're at. Woo! You don't know? No? Uh, you've been brought here? It's his birthday. It's my idea. You've come for your birthday. No, I'm not saying it won't be good. I, I don't want to... You shouldn't be convincing me that my own show is good. But I am going to question it, sir. What, what made you go, I'll get a group of friends together to go to the Guilty Feminist for my birthday? Do something different, you thought. How old are you? If that's okay. I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, so please don't feel obliged. I'm 18. <laughs> You're 50 years old. This is your 50th. Am I your 50th birthday present to yourself? Gosh, this better be good. What's your name? Nelson. Nelson. Would you consider yourself a feminist, Nelson? You've got three teenage daughters. You live with four women. Did they tell you to come to this? Because this is just, I'm just really reaching here, Nelson, as to how this was your idea. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the Guilty Feminist Diaries. That's not what this is called. No, 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 you're in the right show, Nelson, but it's just called The Guilty Feminist. Um, but you've brought some male friends along, and one of them is sitting in the row in front of you. What's happened? Because there's a seat next to you that's available, and you've put him in the seat. You wanted to sit in the front row, sir, away from your friends. Oh, you're worried you'd take someone else's seat. This is the seat you'd been assigned. Gosh, that's... See, I wouldn't worry about that. I'd just be like, they're there, unless I get asked to move. What I'm saying to you, sir, is I'm a white woman. <laughs> that's... No, 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 no. I, I, un I understand, sir. I understand. Okay, all right. So, um... Wow, well, it's de we're delighted to have you. And you've not listened to the podcast, but Nelson, you have. You haven't. More and more curious as to why this is your, why this is your 50th birthday present, but I'm delighted. You know, you know it's... Yeah, no, I'm loving it. I'm just loving it, but I just, I am fascinated. Because if you were like, oh, we were hanging around King's Cross and we thought, what's on? There might be a cello concert at King's Place. And then you were like, no, this, this looks like comedy. I don't really know what it's about, but let's give it a go. I would understand. But it's a planned night out for your 50th. And I, again, I don't want to impose that you're a straight man. Uh, are you a straight man? Is that okay to ask? Yeah? I am. Yeah, you are. Yeah, great. great. Um, asked and answered. Great. It's a unique choice, and I'm so glad you've made it, Nelson. 
Excellent. I feel we need to get you a drink or something, though. I feel like... Yeah, I feel like we need to get you... Are we allowed drinks in here? Yeah, okay. Have we got someone... Tom, are you there? Tom? <laughs> Tom is never here when you need... He, he, he'll put his head through there in a minute. Um, uh, what would you like, Nelson? Do you want a bottle of wine for your friends? How many friends have you brought? A bottle of vodka? There's four... So there's four blokes out on the town. Nelson's 50th. Again, Tom. Okay, Nelson is a 50-year-old man. It's his birthday today. He's, he's never heard the show before, but he planned with three straight male friends, I want to, don't want to assume, yes, to come to the Guilty Feminist. This is his 50th birthday. So would we be able to get them... No. If you're listening at home, Tom, just said, are you being punked? No, no, they're just nice guys who thought this would be a fun night out and are increasingly understanding that it won't. So I'm, I'm just wondering if you could ask someone to get them a bottle of wine. Yeah, get some beers in for the lads, is what I'm asking. Would you like beer or wine? White wine. wine. Don't impose your straight cisgendered male tastes on my audience. We already know what Nelson likes to do for his 50th. He doesn't want your beer. He wants... A rosé if possible. He said a rosé if possible. I'm not being pined. He wants a bottle of rosé. Could you bring a bottle of rosé and four glasses or ask somebody to do that for Nelson's birthday? Yes, Nelson's friend, yes. Could you just tell Tom one of Nelson's friends doesn't drink and would like an orange juice, please? I mean, I just don't know, uh, but I love it. But listen, seriously, you can sit with your friends if you'd prefer, but it seems like you're happy where you are. What's your name, Nelson's friend? Marcus. Marcus. And you've got a, you've got, you have got a beer, Marcus. A cider. A cider. <laughs> that's, not what, that's why you're not s- sitting with those... Rose orange juice drinkers. You're like, I'll come to your birthday, but that's where I draw the line. No, I know it's fully booked. Yeah, no, no, I understand. I understand why. But those feminists haven't turned up. They're probably out doing something incredibly feminist. Or maybe they'll turn up later. Or maybe they'll turn up later. Do you consider yourself a feminist, Marcus? I'm here to learn. What a great attitude, Marcus. What a lovely attitude. Um, Marcus is here to learn. Um, Excellent. Well, are you single, Marcus? You are? Okay. Well, then I would would say you were a feminist if I were you in this room. (laughs) Are you single, Nelson? You're married. Okay. He's married. Oh, how do you know? Did he tell me? Oh, that's right. You said married with children. Yes, with daughters. Yes, well remembered. You are now... What's your name? Ali. Ali, Ali, you're now in charge of remembering things that Nelson or other people tell me. Yes, absolutely. Great. Yes, excellent. Um, All right. So I've been asking audiences lately uh, who thinks they've got a feminist job. Give us a cheer. Wow. See, normally my audience, I think you're probably quite a self-deprecating audience, because normally, as far as I can make out, my audience uh, goes into three groups. 
Uh, one, people working in a particularly feminist occupation of some sort, uh, an organization working for feminism or human rights. Two, oh, the drinks have turned up. Well done, well done. There you go. Thank you, thank you, lovely, okay. Okay, when you've, when you've got your drink ready, we'll, we're, and we're ready for a toast, we'll sing happy birthday to you. They, are you saying, oh, like that's so sweet, or oh, like you're wasting time? We've not, we've not come here to centre a man, is that, was it that? Was it, was it, was it that? Yeah. Yeah. We could do it very quickly, ready? One, two, three, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. See, now we've made Nelson happy and we haven't spent any longer than necessary centering the needs of a straight cis man. Okay? Everyone's happy. Um, I'm all right. Thank you very much, though, Nelson. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, can't, I, I can't drink before I work because it's important for me to be a little bit ahead of the audience. So it's ideal if you've had a drink and I haven't. So if, if I have one, you have to have two. And there's no guarantees. He doesn't drink. Um, <laughs> So yeah, usually it's people who work in human rights or feminism of some sort specifically, or it's people in a sort of NHS role, something that's sort of more generally serving the community, or people doing a PhD on Virginia Woolf. <laughs> there's always one, there's always one. Anyone doing a PhD? Give us a cheer. Yeah, I, you, you said that so softly. <laughs> Went, yay, like it was breaking your spirit. <laughs> What's your PhD in? Biological science. You're a woman in STEM. I'm loving that. Tell us more. But what? Because PhDs are normally something very specific. What's yours in? Can can someone interpret? Microbio. Oh, microbio. I thought you said Michael Bohm, and I thought he's obviously a scientist I've never heard of. Microbio. Okay, that means. The bacteria viruses on your skin, okay. And what's the, what's the thrust of your PhD, if I can be so bold as to call it a thrust? <laughs> oh, so you're looking through the links between microbiome and epilepsy. Wow, so you may be helping people with epilepsy towards uh, better treatment or in fact a cure. Potentially we'll see. Well, that's a scientist for you. <laughs> That's a female scientist for you. What would a male scientist say? Yes. yes, thank you. Yes. That's what I'm doing. I'm just getting up in the morning and curing epilepsy. Call me a 21st century Jesus. Um, well, I'm very excited to hear that. Uh, so that's, I would say that's a very feminist job, woman in STEM. Anyone else got a feminist job? Give us a cheer. Great. Anyone else? Shout out what you've got. Anybody from anywhere? Uh, we run equality programs for London. Oh, wow. You run equality groups in London, so Londoners can have a voice in how policing is delivered. Wow, that's amazing. Is that new? Because I feel like... <laughs> we haven't had much of a voice in how policing is delivered. And therefore... Um, uh, some of us, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say women, 
and there are some black men here in the front row, we've got questions and problems, okay? Uh, we don't feel covered uh, or loved. Um, could you tell us a little bit more? Is it new? It's a bit new. Is it in response to all the horrendous uh, policing and the horrible stories that have come out and the convictions and the WhatsApp groups? Uh, some of you are working on old stuff and some on new stuff. Well, listen, would you like to come on the podcast sometime and tell us about it? Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Do, do you... Hold on a minute. Are you an independent body or do you work for the police department? You work for the mayor. Oh, okay, then. We're happy. Because I was just suddenly went, hold on. Are you police officers <laughs> undercover? Because that's the kind of thing they do. And they're undercover and they're just like... Yeah, we're running an independent inquiry into ourselves. So far, we've discovered we're awesome. We've discovered a few bad apples, but fortunately, they have not spoiled the whole barrel. Um, so you're independent. In fact, you work for the Mayor of London, and you're trying to figure out how it could be uh, less of a cunt show. Okay. You're not politically affiliated. Well, it's hard to know who to be politically affiliated with now. Uh, none of us are politically affiliated at the moment. We're just looking at it all with despair, going, anyone? Anyone? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose I'll vote Labour is my current slogan. But bloody hell, some of the things that have been said lately, it's really depressing and disappointing. And I'm, I just, yeah. Anyway, um, listen, well, we'd love to have you on talking about what you're trying to do and, uh, and what you are doing, in fact, because I imagine there's a lot of resistance from the, the, the Met Police. <laughs> if you were listening at home and you didn't hear that because uh, the guest wasn't mic'd there, she went, hmm. Um, great. So there's some super feminist jobs. Who thinks they've got an unfeminist job? Give us a cheer. Yes, what's your unfeminist job? Um, I work in the charity sector. I head up a fundraising team, so trying to raise money for young people around the world to support them in some of the challenges that they face. So whether that is ending child marriage, fighting climate change, starting jobs, the whole lot. <laughs> and that's the most unfeminist job we have in the audience. Because you see, what I, do you see my point? That is not an unfeminist job. <laughs> No. I said unfeminist. I was like, I was like, that does sound about right. Yeah. I mean, would we call it feminist? I mean, we've really got a lot of challenges to go. Um, no, that's absolutely incredible. Anyone got an unfeminist job? Give us a cheer. Yes. What's yours? Uh, I work for a massive corporate. You work for a massive corporate. Yay. Yay. Uh, what's your massive? Oh, you, you maybe you maybe don't want to say. What do you do for the massive corporate? Um, I run projects. You run projects. <laughs> You run projects for a massive corporate. It sounds like you're doing AI for Zuckerberg, and by the end of the week, we'll all be owned by you and controlled by your robot overlords. I mean, that's possible. That's possible. Great. Okay, super. Um, do you do anything feminist to carbon offset uh, that job? I'm one of the most senior women. You're one of the most senior women. Excellent. Well, you know... They also need uh, senior women in uh, the seventh level of hell. Uh, if anyone's thinking of going there, you know, it's, it's very male-dominated at the moment. <laughs> As is heaven. It's just the way. In the, I'm sure we'll be still working out on this shit in the afterlife, won't we? If there, should there be one? And the, yeah, that's what I mean by the afterlife. Oh, do you mean the next one after the after? Oh, interesting. I haven't really thought that far ahead. 
I've got ADHD. <laughs> Anyone else got an unfeminist job that you, they can beat uh, doing running projects for big corporates? Yes, what's yours? Um, I'm an aeronautical engineer. An aeronautical engineer? That's so feminist. I'm, very, I'm, I'm confused by what you mean by feminist versus not feminist. Oh, unfeminist would be, um, you know, sometimes people say, well, someone said the other day, I work for Amazon in their law department fighting for Bezos. Like, it's, you know, she's like, no, but then she said, but then she said, I'm training as a psychotherapist so I can volunteer in hospitals for women who've been victims of assault. And that, so in order to make the nights better than the days, and I was like, bloody hell. Our audience is incredible. I do truly believe if we locked the door, we could solve a good 25% of the world's problems just <laughs> with any given guilty feminist audience. Um, well, that's wonderful to hear. Aeronautics? Used to design aeroplanes. The, the thing is, so I started my career in a group of, um, I was sponsored, so I was with ten blokes and just me. You were with ten blokes and just you, and you were sponsored. Yeah, and then I went to university, and I was probably one of six women amongst 300. You went to university, sorry, I'm just saying this for the podcast. You went to university, and you were one of six women among 300. Boys. 300 boys, not men. <laughs> and that's been clarified if you're listening at home. 300 boys, there were no men on the course. There were six women and 300 boys. <laughs> Excellent. Continue. Um, so I would say, uh, I mean, that's what I would call a feminist job. I, that's a, that is a feminist job, yeah. I'm yeah. confused by the way you were voicing it, because I think that is being, doing feminism. I'm not talking about it, but doing Yeah, it. yeah. Well, I think it depends. I mean, you can be doing something where you're trying to make the police force better and less homicidal. Or, <laughs> let's be honest... Less brutally homicidal. The women running that program now are literally doubled over, crying with laughter. But it doesn't really feel like they're laughing like they're at a comedy show, but all their hysterical and just exfoliating tears. Um, uh, but that's, that's one way of being feminist. You could be working on a literacy program, working with women, or you could be going... You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be one of six women with 300 boys and I'm going to design great big fuck-off aeroplanes and show you I can do whatever you can do. What do you do now? Um, strategy. Strategy? For, still for designing aeroplanes? No, no, for corporates all around. Oh, you run your own practice. Yeah. For corporates? Well, you could hire her because that's <laughs> just Ali. Is it Ali? No, it's not Ali. Ali's friend. What's your name? Helen. 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 Yeah, you could sure, do... we'll have a drink later. Great. What's your name? Panita. So you two can hang out in the bar at the interval and uh, come back with some deal made. Um, Well, so far, I'm absolutely loving this audience, but I think it is time to start the show and introduce you to my co-pilot for this evening. Put your hands together and make incredible woohooing noises for the wonderful Alison Spittle. Take a seat, Alison. Oh, Alison, I've really missed you. We haven't worked together much lately, and we usually do a lot. Yeah. So it's been just, it's just great to have you. You smell nice. You do. do or I? is it me? Oh, it's me. Sorry. <laughs> that is the worst compliment I've had all week. You smell nice. Sorry, it's me. I, I just bought a few minutes ago. You it, just bought? Bought this, like, uh, body spray. Oh. Smell it? It's a burnt marshmallow mm. and leather jacket flavour. <laughs> That's not a flavour, is it? Yeah. Burnt marshmallow and leather jacket? Yeah. 
So is it like if you're, like, that sounds like an American cookout where lots of teenagers go up to <laughs> Inspiration Point to snog and toast marshmallows over an open fire. Yeah, And you're yeah. trying to get off with the fonds. Well, if, yeah, it feels like the, yeah, like the end of an 80s horror film. You're like, where are all these teenagers? There's just burnt leather jackets and marshmallows. It's not burnt leather jacket, is it? It's just burnt marshmallow leather jacket. Oh, that's jacket. true. That's true. Burnt leather jacket is really... I mean, that would be quite acrid, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be like burning tyre smell, you know? Do you think the Met Police designed that perfume? <laughs> this is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which... Remind them. I'm Deborah Francis-White, or with me is Alison Spittle... And we are talking tonight with Priya Joy about her new book, Mother, brackets, Otherland, um, which is an absolutely extraordinary uh, book that I will get into later. But it will get into race, sexism and discrimination and uh, all sorts of things about motherhood and otherhood. It's a very, very, very interesting book and uh, we're going to deep dive. Fab, that's going to be great. Very exciting. Would you like to hear some stand-up comedies? Yeah. Please welcome to the mic the incredible Alison Spittle. How are we doing? Good. I I want to talk to you about like self-care. Um, because I think self-care is a lot of shit. I've come to realise that. Uh, self-care is give me your money, basically. Like, I find, like, actual self-care is doing your taxes. <laughs> you know, going for a walk. Like, not buying a Korean face mask for 18 quid. Like, I put on face masks. I buy face masks instead of getting uh, psychiatric help. Because <laughs> um, I feel like it's the same thing. And, <laughs> and cheaper. And... Uh, you know, there's a weird thing of like, I'll, I'll, I'll change up my skincare routine because I think it'll change my brain chemistry in some way. And um, I thought like, um, you know, with the, with, with the financial downturn, I don't know, have you been feeling the, the pinch of the cost of living crisis? Um, it's harder being mentally ill and poorer. Do you know what I mean? It kind of exacerbates it. Like, uh, I remember, like, when I was a kid, I had a mental breakdown when I was 13. Um, how it came out was, I was eating a jacket potato, and then I started punching the jacket potato <laughs> on the table and then into the floor until it became like a crispy mash between my fingers with a, with a crispy skin of uh, potato uh, as a boxing glove. And I kept punching and punching and punching. And my mum came in and goes, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> And I was like, I actually don't know. And uh, continued punching Jack Patel. And then uh, it was good because my first breakdown happened in Ireland when it was having an economic boom at the time, right? And if you are going to have a mental breakdown, have it in a time of prosperity because uh, that's when you'll get help. Um, and then when I was 18, the arse had fallen out of the uh, property market in Ireland and uh, I had to pay for my own uh, mental health help. They said, uh, you have to pay for it. And I said, oh, I'm cured. Um, <laughs> it's amazing how that happens. Um, so what I'd like to share with you is like a, a cost of living uh, savings tip 
if you can't afford the expensive face masks anymore for your mental health help, um, I've got a little tip that will help you save money. Go to a supermarket, any major supermarket with like um, a glass kind of deli in the back, you know, where like someone has to wear a white jacket and slice up the meat for you. The good shit, right? Go there and buy a little slice of Billy Bear ham. It will cost about 25p. It's very cheap. And you just, you just pay for it, take it out, bring yourself into a room with a mirror. And then I need you to consume the eyes of the Billy Bear ham. Just eat the eyes. And then um, dart your tongue through the mouth of the Billy Bear ham so you've created a breathing hole for yourself, right? And then I want you to slap the Billy Bear ham straight on your face, right? The mechanical meat juices will moisturize you. Like that, that, I'd say it works just as well as any other face mask that you use. And then, and then I need you to look in the mirror with the Billy Bear face mask on and go, I am enough. <laughs> and one day you'll believe that. Have a lovely day. Bye. Alison Spittle, everybody. Okay, that was excellent. I'm sounding very husky. No, you're sounding, you're sounding brilliant. Very Alison brilliant. Oh. And you are enough. Thank you, Deborah. Wait, you, oh my God. We're having a moment. We are, actually. Yeah, you can all leave. That's uh, very nice. Um, Your hand is beautiful. Have you ever you. been told that? No, I've... You have such beautiful, dainty knuckles. Do you think? I genuinely mean that. I genuinely. I never think they photograph very well. I need to put my moisturiser on. Right, look, my hands look older. It's just, they're just unmoisturised. I need but to... But they're, they're, they're... What do you mean they look older? They look beautiful. Like, Thank don't, you. Don't you... But look don't. at yours. Yours are so moist and bouncy. Yeah, but the, yeah that's, that's me, baby. Uh... <laughs> I just... Mine, mine will be moist and bouncy if I put... I, but I have to put lots of hand cream on all the time. And I was do you know what I recommend? Billy Bear ham. <laughs> The vegans will not be happy. Now, uh, can you get vegan Billy Baham? No. no. The vegans have, a, no. a very pissed off vegan has gone, no, you can't. No. And I, otherwise I'd be doing that tomorrow. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, Guilty Feminists. This is Deborah. We've got some live shows coming up and we would love you to be there. Tonight, Monday, the 5th of June, Alison Spittle and I will be talking to science journalist Priya Joy and NHS nurse and professor of medical humanities Chrissy Watson. That's at King's Place at 7pm in London. And we have more shows at King's Place on the 22nd of June and the 24th of July and Soho Theatre on the 11th and 12th of August. And on Sunday the 9th of July, we'll be at the Turner Gallery in Margate recording an episode from 12.45pm. For tickets, go to guiltyfeminist.com and click on Live Shows. A play that I wrote... Never Have I Ever is at Chichester Festival Theatre on the 1st to the 30th of September and tickets are on sale now and going fast. Go to cft.org.uk and look for Never Have I Ever. It stars our very own Susan McComer and also Alexandra Roach, Amit Shah and Greg Wise. And on the 21st of August, there will be a special episode of the podcast from Chichester where I'll be talking about the show. Join our Patreon to get ad-free episodes and to support the show. And if you could subscribe or follow on wherever you get your podcasts, that'll really help other people find the show. Don't forget to tell someone else you know who might enjoy listening. You could even WhatsApp them or tell them with your face. And now, back to the podcast. Our guest today is a well-respected science journalist who reported on the Ebola breakout in West Africa, the COVID-19 pandemic, and has reported from the field on malaria, HIV, and TB. She has freelanced for The Guardian, the BBC, and Medicine Sans Frontières, and has chaired and spoken at science conferences. She has worked to shine a light on issues of race, sexism, and discrimination her entire career, and she has now published her first book, Mother Other Land. Please welcome to the stage the incredible Priya Joy. Priya, thank you so much for joining us. No, it's so good to be here. It's absolutely lovely to have you. And your CV is so impressive. Thank you. And you heard about some of the incredible feminist uh, voices. What a great audience. I know, I know. They are absolutely astounding. Uh, Your book really uh, interested me very much, and it was really beautifully written. And it opens with a story about your daughter asking if she could have an Elsa from uh, Frozen Frozen. Mm. blonde, like a plait to put on her hair. And as an Asian child, you were like, oh, how's that going to go? And that opened a conversation with her. Um, Can you tell us just a little bit about that conversation and what made you want to write this book? Yeah, so we were living in France at the time and surrounded by a sea of whiteness and we were this little Asian family kind of chugging along. And I'd always thought, so my husband is British Bangladeshi, um, I'm British Indian, and I'd always assumed that my kid had kind of absorbed ideas of identity and race and belonging from us. But actually what I forgot is that kids don't really look to their parents for role models, they kind of you know, look at Disney films and stuff like that. 
So she'd been watching Frozen and, you know, The Little Mermaid and all of these sorts of cartoons and had somehow incorporated the idea that that was what was beautiful and that what was what was pretty and that was what she wanted to be. Mm. And so as we were kind of bumbling around the supermarket, um, she saw this plait, this really long blonde plait. My daughter's got hair as black as mine and she sort of sandwiched it on and looked at herself and went, oh, that looks good. And then that sparked this whole conversation about, well, your skin color's a bit different. And she then said she wanted to be peach. And that's what made me think, okay, I've got to tackle this really. Mm. It, it's, it's an extraordinary moment for a parent to then go, well, I don't want to stop her having something that to her just means, oh, I get to pretend to be Elsa. But at the same time, I don't want to not use this as an opportunity to have this conversation. And when you had that conversation, that must have been devastating to hear that she wanted to be peach and she didn't want to be brown. Yeah, that's right. So I think if she had just picked up the plat, I wouldn't have said anything, but it came from her saying that she wanted to be Peach. Mm. Um, and so that, and because she was only five at the time, I sort of had to really kind of balance like how you talk to kids about tricky issues like this, because you can't be too heavy handed, because then they just ignore you and go looking for the monster munch. Or, mm. But you can't you let those little moments pass, because those are little gems of moments, of opportunities to bring those difficult conversations in. Because when you're a parent, your kid will listen to you for maybe 35 seconds before they just, like, bugger off somewhere. Mm. So that's when I thought, okay, so how am I going to bring this in? So I started bringing in other films, I mean, Disney films with kind of brown princesses and so on. And The Little Mermaid has had recently a live-action makeover yes, at Science Cinema. we just saw that. Did you enjoy it? It was brilliant, yeah. 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 How did she respond to that? She really loved it. She absolutely loved it. And she now sees, now she's older, so she's about to turn nine. And we were talking the other day about body image. And um, I was trying to t tell her about there's a girl a couple of years older who I think is starting to restrict what she's eating. So I was trying to, in my kind of casual way, broach this with Lila and say, hey, so, you know, some girls start to eat a bit less. Um, and she went, oh, no, I love my food. And then she started saying, well, I love being brown. And so she's now internalized a different narrative. And all it, well, all it took, it took a few years. But what it took is seeing more around her, seeing more representation around her. Yes, I think that, that we just underestimate all the time the stories we're told by the media and the stories we tell each other and therefore the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. And the stories, if we internalize that story, our children will pick up on it. Uh, so it's so important that we we get ourselves right because the children in our life, whether they be ours or whether they be children we're close to, I mean, uh, Alice and I don't have any children, unless you've got children I don't know about. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Not that I know about. Um, <laughs> um, I don't, but, like, uh, it's, uh, it is scary, isn't it, like, what children take on? Like, yeah. you don't know... Um, you don't know what they're going to hold on to. See, it really is quite like a tightrope of trying to figure out how do I, how do I, how do I let them know my view of the world without Im Im imposing, imposing it. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Even though, like, to impose a thing that whiteness is not the best thing in the world, mm. to to say to impose that sounds like it's a negative when you know it isn't the best thing in the world. It's just. It's yeah. depicted all the time yeah you know? I think so for the way I approach it is I try and have a conversation with her and kind of gently lead her to 
you know, sort of explaining why. So rather than saying, you know, it's not a great thing when there's only white people in this space, but to say how much cooler would it be if there's lots of different people or lots of different ideas and lots of, and make it kind of more about why it's a good thing rather than, because it, because there is a certain level to how much like kids will take on. Yeah. And if you try and make it too heavy, they then again like run away the other, mo- like, so. Um, so what, what words do you use in that moment? Because I think your book's very beautiful in the way you handle these things. How do you approach it so as not to scare the child off or make them think they've said the wrong thing, but also to open their mind to something else? So, for example, with um, Disney, when we started having this conversation, I said, it's not that great, is it, that you can't see dolls that look like you, you can't see princesses that look like you, but you could actually be anything you want. And so it, I kind of made the most of kids at five or six have all the confidence in the world. They want to be an astronaut. They want to be a singer, a musician. They want to be Beyonce. And so, and to, to sort of point out the fact, because kids are quite smart, if you say, but you could be anything, but why don't you see people who are doing all of these things with the same skin color as you? Mm-hmm. It starts to, they actually figure it out, I think really quickly that this is massively unequal mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily need to hammer that point home and then I sort of have these little com- bite-sized conversations as they come up and but now I'm starting to talk about periods and I when I was talking to my daughter in the shower the other day when she was just hanging outside she said oh this is not about periods again is it and I said well y- no actually it's about the HPV vaccine <laughs> Because, because young girls around the age of like about 11 is a type, so in a couple of years. So I, I, I slip these in at shower time. Nice. <laughs> how do you, <laughs> um, how did my mum, when she gave me the period talk, got the Encyclopedia Britannica out? Oh my God. And opened it up at the picture of ovaries. Oh. And, wow. uh, to me, I was looking at the diagram of ovaries and I was like, this looks like a goat's head. Like, <laughs> a sacrifice or something. Uh, but she, you know, she went into, she had, do you know the way, like, not, not to say all mums, right? My mum had a telephone voice. So Had a what voice? A telephone voice. Oh, yes, yeah. So she'd be like, hello. And then she'd be like, hello. You know, that type of thing. Um, my mum also had a, a period talk voice. Which would be like, Alison, I have something very important to talk to you about. And then she would open up and go, these are the ovums. Um, and uh, yeah, there is a definite, like, the talk voice. Yeah. Did you do that? Or were you ju- you're just chill? I felt like I was being much cooler than that, but yeah. obviously not. Because she could like, see something's we're, coming. <laughs> we're not on the street is the HPV vaccine is coming. <laughs> hey, daddy-o. <laughs> Well, listen, you're doing a great job. Uh, The book's very beautiful. Could you read a little bit of the book for us, please? Yes, I'd love to. So I'm actually going to read that scene where Leela, where we have that moment of reckoning. Mama, 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 can I have that? I glanced up in the middle of the French supermarket we were in, meandering through highways of camembert and baguettes and Côte de Rhone to see what Leela was pointing at. In among a carousel of film merchandising tat, the thing that caught her eye was a blonde Elsa braid from the Disney film Frozen. We'd moved to France when Leela was only 11 months old, to a village on the border with Switzerland that lay in the hinterland between the Alps and the Jura Mountains. 
For the most part, my kid was surrounded by white people in all-weather jackets and iron jeans. What did Leela think about her skin color, I wondered, that she wanted a blonde hair extension? Did she think she was white? Was it true that children had no idea that people came in different colors? I'm happy to buy that for you, but don't you think it might look a bit odd, sandwiched onto your black hair, I asked, amused. I wish I had blonde hair, Leela let out a sigh. You mean you want to dye your hair blonde one day, I replied. It was then that my caramel-colored child told me how she really felt, a confession that made my entire being implode like a dying star running out of energy, collapsing in on itself. She crinkled her nose and then, cautiously, somehow sensing the impact it might have, revealed this heart-stopping confession. I want to be peach. I don't think that brown skin is... She searched for the right word before settling on beautiful. This was my first inkling that my daughter was not entirely at peace with the way she looked. At first, I wasn't sure she really meant it, that perhaps she was trying out a thought like kids do, rolling it around in their minds like a marble to see where it lands. Because it didn't fit the idea I had of her, Leela has always been a bold and confident kid who strides through the world like she owns it, the embodiment of female empowerment. So what's with this dissatisfaction with her skin? Her words played back to me, this time without the pause. I want to be peach. Holy hell. Deep breath, I thought, don't panic. Leela, we come from one of the oldest civilizations in the world. We come from a land where billions pray to mighty warrior goddesses every day. They're all brown. So people in India aren't peach? There's lots of different shades of brown. There's light brown, dark brown, peachy brown even. Your skin tone is just another color in your crayon box. Hmm, she shrugged. I still want the Elsa braid. How much of the book is, is really about raising children who are not of the dominant group where you have to do a sort of special extra sort of parenting that perhaps puts more emotional labour on you and the family than if you were of the dominant group. And I say dominant group, that might be the case in France or the UK, but you are, of course, in the global majority. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're not a minority, but if you are living in the UK or France, how much of this book is really dealing with those subjects of parenting? Um, So quite a lot, because what happens when you're a parent of an ethnic minority living somewhere like the UK or Spain or France, being a parent throws your entire sense of self upside down anyway. And then you've got all this cultural baggage that's kind of weighing you down. And what you're trying to struggle with is how much do you teach your kids? Because if you've got a brown or a black kid, you do need to teach them stuff. There is no, there's no getting around that. But how much do you not weigh them down with your own crap that you're holding? Because, I mean, I lived in England in the 70s and it wasn't pretty at certain points. It was incredible. I mean, it still is incredibly racist, but there was different kinds of racism. And um, and those formative experiences, I don't want to kind of... I don't want those to be the only conversations I have with Leela, um, but that definitely colours it, as it were. Mm-hmm. And what did you learn that you didn't know you knew when you came to write a book because I think there are lots of things you intuit and the ways that you are but when you write a book you have to unpack what you're doing you have to unpack your ideas what did you learn 
I think I didn't realize how much of an influence the outside world holds versus family. I'd always thought that for little kids, their family is their kind of initial universe and then the outside world sort of like rotates around it. But actually, kids take in so much from the outside. The other thing that I learned is because I've got two older stepkids and we all sat down and had this conversation about how they felt. So they're um, part white and part Bangladeshi. And we had a conversation with them about what it felt like to be mixed race and they have really opposing views on how early you talk to kids about race and what you talk to them about. And so it also taught me that actually, and I think I knew this, but it was just proven to me, that whether you're brown or black or whatever ethnicity you are, your view on it is so heterogeneous. It's so different across the board. And people approach this really differently. So my older stepdaughter didn't really want me to talk to Leela too much about it because she thought it was kind of sort of polluting her sweet little world view. But my stepson, who's had racist abuse said, no, he really wanted to, he wished he'd known this, he'd wish his dad had spoken to him about this and kind of prepared him for the world. So even within a family with similar kind of, you know, kind of ethnic background, I guess, you can have such different um, feelings about it. And it is a feeling, because mm-hmm. this is not an objective thing that you can say, well, this is how you talk to kids about this, and this is how you should feel. It is a feeling. Mm. One of the most moving things in the book for me was about you being sent to India as a child and uh, your feelings about that now, having Mm -hmm. a child, that you were sent partly to be raised by your grandparents. And that must have been an extraordinary experience to be parted from your parents. But also uh, you talk about not not really knowing the difference when you're a child, although you remember feeling very heartbroken to leave and missing your sister there was this also this sense that you had later in life when you had your own child where you went how could anyone have done this Uh, and that it's it really goes there in the book it's really really vulnerable could you talk a little bit about how that was to write and what you learned writing that yeah that was um there were a lot of tears and chocolates that I ate after that to make me feel better so I was eight years old Well, I was four months old when I first went to India to live with my grandparents because my mum was going through what we think is postnatal depression. I then came back to England and then I went again at eight. And as a teenager and in my 20s, I kind of just internalised the story, like we all kind of internalise our childhood stories as, well, that's just what happened. Um, Then I had a child, and when my baby was about three or four months old, the same age that I first went over to India. My aunt took me. Um, It was Christmas. We were all in my parents' house. And I remember um, looking down at my daughter and thinking, it would be now as if I were packing her a little suitcase and sending her off and not seeing her for another year and missing her first steps and her first burbles and her rolling over and all of those key steps. And I just, and I had all these hormones raging in me, and I was so in love with my baby and so furious with my mum, and I had a conversation with my mum, and she, and it was just this, like, we were both time-travelling through all these emotions, and kind of, she was sobbing and breaking down and saying that she didn't have any other choice, and I said, I would literally have chopped off a limb rather than be parted from my daughter. So we couldn't talk about this again until about six years later. 
then we had a much more kind of calm conversation where it turned out, where I understood that she actually couldn't cope. And she was having breakdowns every two years, every two weeks, sorry. And um, it was incredibly tough. And I have had therapy about it. And I don't know that I'm, I don't know how much I've processed of it. But I understand her. And I understand also that anger comes with in time, it came with deep understanding of knowing how painful it must have been for her to have her baby on another continent. It must have been very traumatic for you to to write about. Like, how did you deal with the aftermath of of writing about that? And you know, you, you, the book is about like motherhood and stuff, and there's so much that comes up, like. How how did you deal with your feelings and process that while uh, while writing the book and after? Because I, I, I found doing stand up shows about uh, traumatic events. Um, I thought it was for me. I was like, oh, this is trauma, and it's good that I'm processing it, and like I feel artistically like I'm helping myself. But also there was an element of. Um, you know, I couldn't stop crying at yeah. some points and I didn't know why, but it was I've because of trauma. Well, yeah. like, how was that? Doing art about it. It's alchemy. It's an amazing thing to be able to turn your trauma into art, but yeah. you've got to be... Present. I don't know. I, I still haven't figured it out, so I think I'm being a bit I selfish think... and going, what, have you, do you know how to do this shit? Because <laughs> I feel like what happened... How did I cry? <laughs> I feel like what happened when I wrote it was like as if I'd gone deep into this well and scooped up all this stuff I'd been trying to pretend wasn't there, and then now I'm just in this shallow paddling pool and I'm constantly kind of stepping in it and I couldn't get away from it. And so what I had to do then was just not think about it or not look at the book for a while. Right. And so when my editor said, oh, I'm going to send you edits in two weeks' time or something, I, I genuinely nearly had a breakdown. And then I spoke to my sister, who's the first person I will speak to, and she said, yeah. nope you are not going to do that. And then she got me to speak to my agent, who then spoke to my editor, who said, Priya can't deal with this right now. She needs a bit more time. Mm -hmm. So I sort of had this protective kind of veneer over me. And um, because I, I couldn't, I, I think it, my skin, it felt like every layer of my skin had been stripped off. And I was sort of going about my day and taking my kid to school and pretend, you know, and go, seeing friends and pretending like kind of life was normal as if I hadn't just excavated this enormous trauma yeah um i did speak to a therapist and then i just went on holiday loads <laughs> <laughs> good good good, good yeah call, good call. that's good <laughs> and the other thing you said you really wanted to talk about tonight was about the motherhood choice mm. that the way society demands one thing or the other or both and neither at the same time um can you speak to that a little bit yeah, this is something I feel so strongly about. I, so there's a chapter in the book that I talk about um, to be or not to be a mother. And when I was trying to figure out whether I wanted to be a mum, because it seemed like such a huge decision, I spoke to friends who'd had babies and they just went, oh, well, we kind of just figured it out. And then, um, and they seemed to think much less about their choice to have a baby than women who deliberately had chosen not to or couldn't or, you know, there just didn't seem to be the same level of thought. And, um, and it really made me think about how we, 
It, it is actually such a feminist choice to have a baby or not, or whatever it is you want to do with your body. But when, even now, in 2023, when women don't want to have a baby, for whatever reason, they're constantly asked about it at parties and so on. Oh, you know, you guys are not whatever. Um, and then when they do have a baby, about 80 or 90% of the workload is dumped on them. Mm. And they are, find it impossible to get childcare and they have to pretty much, loads of women I know, if they're in a partnership, about 90% of their earnings goes into childcare. And it just feels like this impossible sort of cycle, reproductive cycle that we're locked in no matter what we choose that I feel like is a big distraction from the bigger thing of world domination and mm-hmm. ruling the world, which is really what we want, it right? Does, it does yeah. seem like a massive distraction. When yeah. I, I tried to have children and couldn't, but then I decided to stop trying and just think, right, I'm going to focus on other things. And that was a decision. It was a conscious choice. And I, a couple of times at parties, someone with children would say to me, are you going to have children? I'd be like, no, I've decided not to. And they'd say, you'll change your mind. And I, and I would always just go, oh, have you... <laughs> You've changed your mind. You've had children. You've changed your mind. Yeah. And that really used to close down the conversation in a very dramatic way. That's such a good And then apparently I've ruined the dinner party again. Um, but sometimes I think that's what it's about. I think it's about, like, I need you to have children quickly because I've had them and now I'm finding it a little bit tricky. And, yeah. you know. yeah. and the thing is, both having children and not having children is amazing. Yeah. If you want it to be. If you get behind, of course, there are some people who really want children and can't have them, and that is biological and it's a driver. And I absolutely, deeply empathise with that. Yeah, I really, really do. I'm not taking that away from anyone. But if you're undecided, then and you just go, oh, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. Pick one. Yeah, and then get behind it. That's what I'd say. And really? It, yeah, I'd say pick one and get behind it. I don't waste... I wasted too many years, not sure. And I'd re- I really wish I'd just gone, I'm not doing it. You know? I, I keep feeling like I'm forgetting to have kids. <laughs> Do you know? You could set an alarm on something on your phone. <laughs> what, like the biological clock? <laughs> yes. I, I just hit, you keep hitting the snooze on the biological clock. I, so. I, I don't think I am going to have kids. But I would love to get past the point where you're in two minds mm. well, I'd love to I'd love to be like I'd love for their choice to be taken away from me do you know what I mean and then people go oh you didn't have kids like, oh shit yeah forgot that don't have yeah. a mortgage either <laughs> probably not going to get that either and just be at one I hate I hate the possibility yeah, I know, of I children know. within do you I, know I do know exactly what you mean I think a people lot of people have to pull out that. you know <laughs> no I, I, I think a lot of people I think a lot of people relate to it of not knowing and thinking, well, maybe I should. And a lot of women I know are freezing their eggs, that kind of thing, just in case you panic later and think, I really want this. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I don't think there's any way around it. I think if the biological possibility is within you, you'll always think, is this, am I missing out on some huge opportunity? No, not you will always. Some people know they don't want them. Some people know they do. But if you are, a lot of people are in that middle and they flip-flop, just give us a cheer if you're in the middle, you don't know. Just give us a cheer if you absolutely know you don't want them. <laughs> well, those people are yeah. the happiest. Uh, <laughs> if you know that you do want them, but you haven't had them yet, if, you, if you've had them and it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> if you've had them and it's too late, give us a cheer. Hey. If you're, if, had 
That's a very if masculine sounding. If you're, yeah, that's Nelson. If you're, <laughs> if you're pleased, you've had them overall, like on a, you know, a sort of, you go, all things being equal. Yeah, I'm glad I did it. Give us a cheer. If you think, oh no, it was a terrible mistake. No one should do it. Give us a cheer. Okay. Yeah. No one wants to admit to that, but I should have done that one first. Because yeah. I think now they've heard those people, they think I can't say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, I feel like my ovaries are a well, and I just want to fill the well with cement. <laughs> um, instead you, of having a warning sign going, danger, well. You can do that, you know. You can I do can it. I can fill my well with cement. I don't think that's the process, no. I don't think that's, <laughs> I don't think that's what you should ask for when you go to the doctor. No. I don't, I don't go in and say, I, I'd like you to fill my well with cement. Because then they definitely won't do the thing they can do. Right. Uh, because they'll think, you, she's, she's... What would they think? <laughs> anyway, think, let's, uh, yeah... Yeah. Um, well, listen. The book is the book. Is, the book is phenomenal. Is, is there anything you came to say that you didn't get to say that you would like to tell us about? I think just think hard before you have kids. No, I just think it should be a woman's choice. That's what I would say. I think we should stop having the entire world and politicians getting involved. I think it should be a woman's choice. Just make your own decision. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Nina Carlson's wife, Jessica Hurst, Alison Smith, and our very special guest, Priya Joy. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Zelinsky for the sponsored Daily Shot. Thanks to Rachel Croft and Gina Dicio, Zayda Mohammed, and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit electric shock no no what happened was right uh i twisted it with with a bit of like it, it the two things came down and sandwiched my finger between it oh joe was mad i was gonna call it a little bitch <laughs> and then i remembered i'm at the kill you feminist so i was like no that's misogynist um well, i'm a feminist but i call anything that hurts me a little bitch <laughs> i call my sister a little bitch but that's out of love you know how are you, you little bitch? <laughs> She's fine. She's a uh, 12. Um, so, I... Uh... The Guilty Feminist is provided exclusively from Acast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalised card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.